Hello and welcome to this, the second Faber podcast of 2012. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is writer and journalist Philip Altermann. Philip, who's an editor on The Guardian, spent the first half of his life in Germany, before coming to England in his mid-teens. His first book, Keeping Up with the Germans, is in part a memoir, in which he turns his wry gaze on both his old and new homelands. It's also an alternative modern history of Anglo-German encounters, which embraces the sports field much more than the battlefield. In Keeping Up with the Germans, you'll discover why British bathrooms cause Germans such bewilderment, and why our food leaves them feeling underwhelmed and undernourished. You'll also find out what happened when former Chancellor Kohl served Margaret Thatcher sausage and boiled potato wrapped in pig intestines, and read about a whole host of other Anglo-German encounters, dialogues and, yes, mutual misunderstandings throughout the history of our two nations. But now, are there signs the British might even be moving beyond the antipathies of the 20th century and risking admitting there are things about Germany to admire beyond precision engineering? We shall come back to that. When we met at the Guardian offices, I began by asking Philip how he came to be here in the first place. In 1996, my parents one evening broke me the news that uh, my, my father had been offered a, a job in the uh, London office of his uh, his company and that we would effectively be moving to London for, well, for, for a couple of years. And it, it was a possibility that I might just do a year abroad, which is something that Germans do quite a lot. You know, I was um, I was 16 at, at the time. Uh, and so after some to and froing, we decided to to give it a go, and uh, so um, we moved uh, to London in 1997. And after a sort of difficult first year, which is what the book is to an extent about. I mean, half of the book is is a sort of my story of of being German in uh, England for a year. After a difficult first year, I actually really started to like it, and I somehow got stuck. And um, my parents have since moved moved back, and. Um, I've been here ever since, and I'm now you know, married and working here, and um, so. <laughs> and I suppose I suppose you came at quite a quite a critical age because if you were much younger, I suppose you'd have assimilated entirely and and probably shed your, a lot of your German identity. And if you'd been older, you probably wouldn't have shed it at all. But you were you were sort of a you know, mid-teens, which is a, yeah. a real really important stage in sort of discovering what kind of person you are. Yeah, I think I think um, you. I was very. Well, insecure <laughs> as teenagers are, and you're not settled as a as a as a person at that point in time. And in in many ways, it makes it a lot easier to just say, okay, you know, what I am, that German self, is actually quite easy to just shed that skin and just put on that sort of English duffel coat and try and be as English as possible. And I think that made it easier. I mean, if I had come over when I was eighteen, it would have been a lot a lot harder. But it um it sort of means that quite a lot of things in me I'm you know I'm constantly confused about what the sort of opinions I have and, and the things I do whether they're shaped by my time in, in Britain or time in Germany I'm sort of coming up you know in two years time I will have been you know, exactly half my life in, in one country and half in, in the other uh, it's going to get even more confusing then yeah. so, so you, you you go to it starts attending an English school and you become known as German Phil I mean what 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 kind of um what kind of ideas of Germany did you feel were being sort of projected onto you? Uh, I mean, one of the things that Germans always say about the English is that, you know, the English are obsessed with the Second World War and that every English person thinks that every German person is a Nazi. 
to an extent that's true. I mean, that does that, that does exist, and there is a sort of heavy emphasis on on the national socialist era in 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 the English curriculum. But I mean, I have to say, I mean, I didn't I didn't really meet that much hostility. That wasn't the sort of main thing. I mean, I, there were in a way more subtle than that. I think the prejudices that I got. I mean, one of this is that you know Germans don't have a sense of humour. That Germans are robotic. You know, it's like that that joke, which is that the German boy who never says anything until he's 15 and then one day his mother he says mother I uh, why did you not change the sheets and she said why didn't you say anything before because up, 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 up until now everything has been satisfactory <laughs> you know it's a sort of uh, you know robotic German I mean that's culturally I think a strong type that people expect and I sort of think I mean football arrogance was actually another character trait that people associated with Germans when in the 90s particularly and I think that had to do you know that has and may has very little to do with with the war and I think we over overemphasize the the sort of the way the war still shapes the, those relations I mean I think it's got, all got to do with the economy and that in the 90s you had all these big German companies uh, you know buying uh, up British companies like Rover for example and you know that you'd have these sort of rich Germans coming to coming to London I think or doing in general I think that was much more influential in, in shaping shaping the sort of national um, cliches. I thought it was really fascinating what you said about both your own attempts to get to grips with the subtleties of the English language and how it's used, and also the contrast you made with your own peers in mm. the English the English students in school, who were very verbally quick and mm. clever and sharp, mm. but you say were very um, reticent. They fell silent when. Um, abstract ideas, big ideas came up. And I thought it was an interesting idea and something that, that perhaps points to different casts of mind between the two nations. Yeah, I mean, it just struck me that that is uh, a major cultural difference. It doesn't mean that it's uh, it can't change over time, but it, I think there is a thing in German history which is known as the Sprachkrise, which is the crisis of language, you know, and some people might say that's just something that happened in, in literature and to poetry in the 19, uh, you know, early 20th century. But I think there's a sort of a sense of feeling uncomfortable in with language and that somehow there were ideas that you couldn't express through language and that these ideas existed outside language. I mean, you know, and you can, you know, that's Wittgenstein, you know, there's big philosophy there, but I think it trickles down that's the, to, to the way people talk on, on an everyday basis. So English people always struck me as very confident with, with language. You know, language was, was their, their element, whereas once it came to the more sort of abstract, big ideas, it would, you could quite easily as a schoolboy, be accused of being, you know, the boffin, that you know, being pretentious, you know, which was, was very, it's a very English sort of criticism, you know. I think uh, you have a lot of newspapers in, in Germany that, that are just pretentious, and, and no one really almost criticised them for being being so. Uh, so, so that's yeah. I mean, that's something that I sort of always found quite interesting, and I guess I found it quite easy, even though my I wasn't that verbally dexterous as a as a schoolboy. I was, in a way, more confident about ideas than than my than my peers in a, in a strange way. That's slightly blowing my own trumpet. That's not to say that I'm a brilliant philosopher, but I think that's just the way you sort of, as a, as a 16 year old, I, I thought. Now, besides being about your own and your family's encounter with England, the book is also about encounters in the past mm. between German culture mm. and English culture. So, how did you come up with the, the sequence of encounters that that run through the book? Mm. 
I thought, okay, I have, I have this. There was this narrative of, of you know, a memoir of someone coming, a teenager, <laughs> coming to England, and I thought that's not quite, quite enough. So I wanted to tell a little bit about the history of the two countries, and I thought it just struck me that there's a similar narrative actually about a country, Germany, which is a bit of a teenager in the 19th century at the time that. England just feels to Germans just a lot more grown up. It has democracy, it has free, freedom of speech, it has industry. And so this sort of narrative of growing up in relation to another country or uh, to people around you just struck me that there's an interesting parallel to, to work with. I mean, ever since I've, I've lived here, I've, I've been sort of fascinated with you know, anecdotes of, of historical meetings of, I mean, not, not particularly... They don't have to be important meetings. Some of them, I mean, some of them feel like important meetings, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Helmut Kohl, but the ones I enjoyed most, actually, and I found most interesting were often more sort of private meetings between just unusual people. And that, that sort of t told you something about the differences between the two countries and the similarities. So, um, you know, for example, something like the German Dada artist, Kurt Schwitters, coming to... England during the Second World War, you know, I mean, it's just an interesting story that he, as someone who was a leading artist in Germany, couldn't find anyone who understood what he was doing here and really, you know, lived in poverty, even though the art that he produced then was, would go on to really be very influential and look much like what we, you know, associate with pop art and with, you know, punk art. Uh, but the only person he could somehow really engage with wasn't an artist, but a gardener. And this, this, so, I mean, that wasn't an important meeting, but in many, it just tells you quite a lot about actually, you know, I guess the, the similarities that we might have somewhere uh, beneath the surface after, after all. Yeah, because, I mean, sometimes there are cultural misunderstandings, aren't mm -hmm. there? And the Helmut Kohl Thatcher meeting, you know, they, they don't really see eye to eye at all. And he was trying mm -hmm. to impress her and show a particular side of himself and that didn't work. But they're not all about misunderstandings. There are there are possibilities yeah. for, for, yeah. The, for the meetings of minds, aren't there? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think generally there's a very boring book to be written only about the things that we have in common. And I think broadly we have a lot in common. You could about, about the same token you can say that for two countries that are actually geographically really quite close there are quite fundamental differences and thus misunderstandings and misunderstandings are a bit more fun to write about than than the sort of people getting on but at the same time I guess particularly the areas where we tend to think we are very different and where there's friction between the countries I think it's interesting to sort of look a bit more closely I mean football is an example where you know, we will forever think that that's the point where England and Germany come to a crunch and produces a lot of bad feelings, um, you know, penalty shootouts and people doing offensive things on the pitch and saying offensive things afterwards. But actually, if you step back and, and look at it, it's a beautiful story of uh, two countries really dedicating and finding something in a, in a type of sport. And, uh, and I think in Germany, there's, you know, there's sort of respect for the for the tradition of the sport, which was, until the 1920s, was, was considered a very, very English thing. That was, you know, it was called the English disease, or, you know, it was called foot hooliganism at one point. Uh, there's quite a lot of respect for, for, for that, and, and, and in many ways it, it's more, I, t I think of it, it's a beautiful example of, it, it's produced a lot more similarities and a lot more, actually it can be a vehicle for diplomacy. I mean, that, that's why, I, rather than writing about the sort of famous, you know, 1966 World Cup or uh, 1990 penalty shootouts. I thought um, I came across this 1977 European Cup final, where, which ended not only with two players sort of starting a friendship, but also 
uh, a fan friendship between uh, Liverpool and München Gladbach fans who um, who to this day once a year organize a friendship trip where they visit each other and you know I think we sort of overlook that for the for the sake of the the headlines but but there's a beautiful story there actually about um, understanding rather than misunderstanding but you mentioned penalty shootouts and when it comes to them it seems that two countries view them in a completely different way can you can you just sort of summarize what you what you think marks that um, disparity I mean, there are lots of theories about why <laughs> about why Germany keeps on winning at penalty shootouts. But the statistics are really remarkable that Germany is one of the best countries when it comes to just the figures for scoring penalties at penalty shootouts. And England is just one of the world's, world's worst countries at that, which is you know, remarkable. I guess one thing, it's sort of in the name. So, I mean, uh, that doesn't explain everything, but there's a hint of, of that. So it's uh, the fact that it's penalties, uh, to me, has an overtone of, uh, you know, this, you haven't managed to score until this point. So this is a bit of a punishment. I guess it has a negative overtone. In, Ge- in German, it's called Elfmeter, which is just says 11 meters. It's, it's very prosaic in comparison. It just says, okay, just 11 meters, just, just you know. Just uh, just score the goal. So there's there's a sort of different difference there. But I found it quite interesting going through press reports on on all the penalty shootouts that England lost. The sort of narrative there that keeps on popping up is is that it's you know a penalty. It's a game of chance. It's pure luck, which I've never heard in in Germany. I think it's very much considered part of the game and part of it's another sort of discipline within the game to be mastered. And there is a heavy emphasis on control in German sport and if you if you broaden out you know that that's partly comes from the fact that Germany before it embraced English style sports it was very much gymnastics which which were considered a the German type of exercise and which is all about control it's all about monitoring every type of the, the process so you know that's German football also at its worst is completely controlled no fun no adventure but on the other hand English sport, I guess, has a tendency to constantly increase the element of, of chance in it. I mean, there's a, I mean, I've played in both countries, you know, not professionally, but uh, on amateur level, and I always remembered sort of one of my first games, uh, uh, someone in my team saying to me, you know, sometimes I just, I just don't understand how it actually, and he was a really good player, he, uh, I don't understand how the ball ends up in goal. It just seems like so, there's so many random factors at play. So I think English sport has always been more willing to, to accept the element of chance in sport, whereas German football has tried to, the sport has tried to deny it. And in penalties, I guess that those two mentalities come to a clash to Germany's advantage. I thought it was interesting what you wrote about the, the different way that teams have in England of communicating with each other and how you, that seemed sort of strange to you at first and then you became part of it. What, what, did you, what did you discover coming to that as an outsider? After a year at, a German, at, at, a, at an English um, school, I'd, you know, I found it quite hard to essentially make friends and that was really important to me I mean that's you know why I wanted (laughs) that's what would have made me stay was making friends and through language that was just hard because I felt I was always a step behind and I wasn't particularly into football but I never really played for a proper team before but I sort of joined a football uh, team in my school and even though it wasn't a particularly good team I really sort of discovered football as a as a model of um socialization in a way and language is a is a huge part of that and I've always found since that when I've played with English teams against 
German teams, which I've done, that English teams talk a lot more. I mean, they shout a lot more, and sometimes it can look like desperation and panic. But there's a sort of there's a nice element that you become part of the team, and teamwork is you know it, it teaches you to to, to sort of um, not be selfish. I mean, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing about about team sports uh, that we sort of uh, f forget. But I guess it's the other element, uh, what we talked about before, that um, the sort of it teaches you language. I mean, it teaches you the English reliance on, 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 on language as, as the glue for everything. And, and my sort of that was my moment when, when I eventually scored for that team that I, d I decided to stay in, in, in England after all. Uh, one of the, the hoary old prejudices is that the Germans have no sense of humour. And I thought one of the, the most bizarre episodes in your book was when you write about an English comic called Freddie Frinton, mm -hmm. who performed this sketch called Dinner for One, which be has become an enormous hit in Germany and is, is still to this day shown on, on German television and yet has never been shown on, on English television. So, what, so what, are the, what are the Germans picking up in this that, that, um, that we, we, we don't see? It's complicated story. Dinner for One is a musical sketch which was a sort of part of the repertoire of a lot of musicals in the seaside resorts at the start of the 20th century. And it was discovered in the 60s by a um, German TV show host, uh, Peter Frankenfeld, who, with his assistant, went to Blackpool and saw this comic, Freddie Frinton, perform that sketch and sort of... Um, well, I guess fell in love with it. I mean, it's hard to say what exactly he picked out. Because he then, I mean, he, you know, convinced them to come to Hamburg, record it there. And it didn't, wasn't particularly successful at first. It took another 10 years. But, and then something clicked and the sketch has become some, I mean, some records say uh, the most repeated show on television in, 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 the, in world history. Because it's shown every year on, on a lot of German uh, channels and all the regional channels, um, but all some of the others. At normally it's around six o'clock, and it's just a sort of part of part of the New Year's Eve tradition that you watch um, the sketch dinner for one. Whereas here, of course, this it's been forgotten; it's never been shown on on on, on British television, um, apart from maybe some some sort of excerpts. It's really hard to say what exactly it is. I mean, it maybe perhaps it's um, uh, slap the fact that it's slapstick plays a huge part in it. I mean, the, the dialogue is limited. You know, it's easy to understand for Germans, but also it's about uh, it's about physical media. It's about a butler who, uh, I mean, the setup is, is that Freddie Frinton is, is the butler to an old aristocratic lady who's and they're celebrating her 90th birthday, but all the people around the table are, in fact, dead. So he has to impersonate the different guests and drink a toast on everyone's behalf and ends up very drunk and keeps keeps on falling uh, falling over I mean it's, it's as simple as that and I, c I can see how you know I mean I think perhaps it's more interesting why the Germans have been in obsessed with it rather than why the, the English have, have neglected that that sketch I mean one answer is I think that that trope of the old lady and the endless rituals and endless repetition and the dead people in the room is actually, I mean, it's not just Dinner for One who has that, you know, you have, that's, I mean, Beckett was was a massive success in Germany, in many ways more successful in Germany than in England in the in around that time. You know, UNESCO, other sort of absurd drama, it's the, the classic setup of that is old people who who are obsessed with rituals and reenact the same thing over and over again. I mean, and the other thing is, you know, who are the dead people around the, the Admiral von Schneider? I mean, you know, when did he die, if not in the Second World War? I, I guess... What I'm trying to say is that perhaps 
it makes sense to think of it as a way of laughing at something very serious for German audiences, which is for German, German, Germany doesn't have the same tradition of black comedy that, that Britain does. So laughing at something serious is, was at the time in the 60s was considered something very new. And people still now, I mean, I have relatives who, you know, who ask me, you know, British humour? I mean, do you understand it? You know, it's considered a sort of quite, still quite an edgy thing. And in a, I think Dinner for One was the sort of catalyst through which Germans felt they could finally do uh, black humour. That's my explanation anyway. How, how much, Philip, do you think that the sort of current warmer attitude to Germany in this country is due to Berlin having become such a popular destination for, yeah. for British visitors post-reunification? Well, um, I mean, I, <laughs> I tend to be sceptical about Berlin, and that's partly because I think Germany is very regional. I mean, whenever I ask young people in Germany how, you know, what, what are you? Are you proud of being German, or what are you proud of being European? The answer normally is, I'm. I'm first and foremost, I'm proud of being a Berliner, a you know, uh, from Lower Saxony, from Bavaria. Then I'm European, and then I'm German. So I think um, <laughs> everything I say about Berlin has to be taken with a pinch of salt because it's, you know, I'm sort of Berlin and and Hamburg have always had a bit of a rivalry that they thought themselves the, the sort of the, the gate to the world in in in, in Germany. I think it's probably a play, it's played a huge, huge part in it. A lot of young people have have moved to Berlin. It's a very exciting place, as it you know it has felt like that before. I mean, I guess it felt like that to Christopher Isherwood when he went there in the twenties. You know, today David Bowie when he went there in the seventies, uh, when people went there after the fall of the wall. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not completely new that. I think I'd like to think. I mean, the, that another reason why attitudes. To Germany, people are a bit more interested in Germany at the moment. It's not just about Berlin, which isn't entirely representative of the whole of Germany. But you know, I think some people look at Germany and they see a sort of a hint of maybe what Britain might have looked like in the in the nineteenth century. And you know, there's sort of you know people always saying that the streets are cleaner and there's a sort of Victorian you know it's, it's a lot more civil place. I mean, you know. No, and you've got and you've got manufacturing, you've got apprenticeships, you've got yeah. small and medium enterprises, you've got yeah. workers' councils, all sorts of things which are now being invoked in political yeah. discourse in this country. I think so. I mean, I think there's in politics. I mean, people are perhaps a bit more hesitant. I think it's still for a British politician probably a bit harder to say we should follow the German model uh, than it is to say we should look at America. But I think secretly they are they're all really interested in in sort of the sense that there's this thing you know Rhineland capitalism or you know uh, which is an alternative to the to the American model so that people you know you do have higher employment you do have manufacturing uh, and there's a sense that things are more stable there and and that some of these values aren't completely alien to to Britain because not so long ago it was used to be the other way around that Germany looked at looked at England and, and sort of admired its its engineering prowess so um, I think that's in many ways a more Important factor than than just just sort of starry Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> there speaks a hamburger. <laughs> um, the final question, Philip. When you go back to Germany now, do you see it through bifocal eyes? Are you do you, have you have you become at least part English in your perceptions? Yeah, I think the first time I realised that was not actually that long after I'd, I'd moved to um, England. It was when I played football with some German friends, and uh, I sort of missed a shot, and I just said, "Oh fuck," you know. <laughs> It just, it just suddenly realized that that wasn't, you know, where did that come from? You know, it was, I was talking, I was sort of thinking, 
in in English rather than German. But it 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 is strange when I go back now. I sort of um, I get very defensive of uh, of England. I mean, Germans are very snobbish about um, English food still, which I think is sort of ironic given that Germany is hardly famous for its excellent cuisine. I mean, you know, sausages accepted maybe, but um, I think there are you know many you know, many ways like the way I think about I mean I'm, I tend to make a lot more jokes <laughs> that when I talk to people I say things you know um, I make jokes and I don't necessarily indicate that I've made jokes which is what Germans don't tend to do they tend to somehow tell you that they've made a joke so that can produce a lot of confusion when I talk to uh, friends and, 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 and family when I, when I go back but it's um, yeah I mean it's it's increasingly complicated <laughs> but it's you know interesting <laughs> Philip Altermann Keeping Up With The Germans is available now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up to receive them regularly by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, when I'll be talking to Tobias Jones about a long unsolved Italian murder case, Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.